Today in our text from John chapter 2, we have this well-known story of Jesus turning water into wine. Last week, you may recall, at the end of Jesus' encounter with Nathanael, he told Nathanael that he would see even greater things than he'd seen, even greater things than Jesus knowing about him while he was still under the fig tree. That's how the text ended at the end of chapter 1. This is the first of those greater things that would be seen. And we could even say, we could even say that all the other signs that Jesus will do are merely the outworking, right? they're merely the implications of this sign. This sign is first for a reason, a good reason. And we'll make two points here, two points. They're in the back of the bulletin. The story and the glory. First, we'll look at the story, what actually happens here. And second, we'll try to unpack its significance. So the story and then the glory. So first, the story itself. So we're in John chapter 2. The text says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. The third day here is the third day since the prior encounter with Nathaniel, and it almost certainly is not an allusion to the resurrection. It's just the third day after the encounter with Nathaniel. So there's a wedding. There's a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana is Nathaniel's hometown, who Jesus had just been talking to. It's about eight miles, so you can walk there. It's eight miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus' mother, you'll notice that John always calls Mary Jesus' mother. Never calls her Mary. Anyway, Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples, surely the five disciples who he just called at the end of chapter 1, at least those five, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. Now, when your mother's invited and you're invited and five of your friends are invited, that means this wedding is surely the wedding of a close friend or a family relation who's getting married. It's not insignificant that Jesus is at a wedding at the outset of his ministry. For the goal of his ministry, the goal, as we shall see, is a wedding. All of history is nuptial history. All of history is marital history. All of history is wedding-oriented history. So he's at a wedding at the beginning. Anyway, Jesus likes parties. He likes get-togethers. He's frequently at some dinner party. One scholar said he seems to eat his way through the Gospels. And again, this is by design. Right, Because the theme of the kingdom, which is the central theme of Jesus' preaching ministry, the theme of the kingdom is a wedding theme. And thus it's a feasting theme. Or to put this another way, Jesus enjoyed life. And he enjoyed it in a very robust and vigorous manner, often with people who were not approved by the authorities. He enjoyed it so much that his enemies, the hyper-cautious religious ones, 
used it against him. You'll remember Jesus said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, of course, Jesus came eating and drinking does not mean that people were astonished that he engaged in normal human digestive activity. Right? Look, he chews, or he swallows water. It means he lived life in a celebratory way, in an embracing manner, affirming with joy all the goodness there is to affirm in the created order. You don't get accused of being a drunkard and a glutton if you're hyper-disciplined minimalist about food and drink. If you're super fastidious, no one accuses you of drunkenness. So, of course, Jesus gets invited to the wedding. And, of course, he accepts. He goes to the wedding. I mean, one could imagine him having a sort of uh, alternative, pious mindset where he would stay home. Where he would think, you know, weddings are dangerous. People drink there. There's drinking at these weddings. There's people dancing at the weddings. My disciples are brand new. I've had no time to teach my disciples or train them. My family is going to be at the wedding, and they're not very devout. I think instead, I'll spend the weekend on a Foundations of the Faith seminar with my disciples at home. How pious is that? Well, it's, it's more pious than Jesus is going to be. Or put it differently, it's not pious enough, it turns out. It turns out that that is not pious enough. Jesus goes to the wedding. He starts the training of his disciples at a wedding full of pagans. That's how he starts. And his presence at this wedding, at this wedding, at this point in his ministry, at this sort of alpha beginning point of his ministry, his presence here has been understood rightly to be something of a benediction on all weddings. It's magnificent. He goes to the wedding because he approves. He rejoices in the institution of marriage, not just in his heart, publicly with his body. It's a great joy for me to do weddings. I've had the privilege of doing a bunch of them. And the traditional English wedding language from the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, is, it's been hallowed by centuries of use in the West, and it's just gorgeous here. Right, just after the bride enters and proceeds to the front, the groom takes her hand, they stand before the minister, the service starts, everyone's still standing, and the service starts with these famous words, Dearly Beloved, We have come together in the presence of God to witness and to bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. And then it proceeds. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God at creation and our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The second sentence 
in a traditional English wedding service from the Book of Common Prayer refers right to our text. It's impossible to improve upon this. Which is why I'm always disheartened when couples say to me, we'd like to design our own wedding service. I usually say something like, do you design your own penicillin? (laughs) But in any case, it's magnificent. Our Lord Jesus Christ adorned, meaning he approved this manner of life by his presence and his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So, of course, he goes and he takes his friends, his disciples. Now, these weddings would last a week and the whole local community would be present. So instead of a honeymoon, the bride and groom would host something of an extended open house. I remember when I was young in a different America, we we had block parties in the summer. Some of you may have had them. We'd have a block party where for a whole weekend, there'd be food and drink and swimming and baseball, and there'd be clustered around a couple houses in the neighborhood, and everyone from the block would come. Right? This is like a block party for a couple of blocks that lasts a week. So these weddings would be one of the highlights of life in a small, rural, poor village like Cana, No one's taking any exotic vacations. No one's going on any cruises. This is a life highlight. And verse 3 says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother, who seems to be serving or assisting with the catering, which makes sense, it's the wedding of a relative, she says to him, They have no more wine. Now, this is a big crisis at a Jewish wedding. It would have been the groom's responsibility to ensure that there's enough wine for the whole week. You don't need enough wine for four hours. You need enough wine for six or seven days. And to run out of wine would be a social embarrassment. In fact, we have evidence that you could be sued if you did not provide wine for your guests at the wedding. That's how serious it was. The rabbis had a saying. Without wine, there is no joy. And no less than John Calvin said this, those who enjoy wine feel a livelier gratitude toward God. Wine, wine, not drunkenness, of course, not drunkenness, but wine was rightly viewed as a good gift of the creation, as a benefit from the hand of the creator. Psalm 104 says God gives wine to make the heart of man glad. Wine brings levity. It brings gladness. It brings merriment to the heart. So Mary knows this is a serious issue, especially if there's a number of days left until the end of the wedding. So she goes to her son, almost surely not expecting a miracle, because remember, this is Jesus' first miracle. He hasn't done any miracles yet. But she's probably trusting his wisdom and his resourcefulness. So she lets him know the problem. They have no wine. And Jesus' reply is interesting. There's a kind of polite distance in the reply. He calls her woman. He does this here, and he does this at the cross. It doesn't imply any any lack of love or, or respect for his mother. 
But it does mean that the relationship between Jesus and his mother has been altered. Right? Jesus is now baptized. Right? He's now beginning his public ministry as Messiah, through which he's going to create a new family, a new, a new set of brothers and sisters, the church. And so now no bond, even the bond with his mother, will remain unchanged. She is now a disciple. He is publicly now master and Lord. So he says, woman, why do you involve me? Something like, what is this to me? In other words, he's saying this, isn't this the groom's responsibility? And the reason for this kind of coldish, sort of cold reply is, very important, my hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, and we'll see this repeatedly, the hour or my hour refers to the events associated with the cross and his exaltation. So Jesus is saying, look, mother, it is not time for my glory to be fully revealed. He understands that her request is a request to manifest his glory and his exaltation. Interestingly, Mary, I wouldn't say she she doesn't take no for an answer, but she has an instinct here which is admirable. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She figures he'll do something. And I think her faith is commendable here. So you know how the story proceeds, right? There are six stone water jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. In this setting, they're there so people can wash their hands and so you can wash the vessels for the wedding feast. And these are big jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. So about 150 gallons total. And Jesus tells the servants to fill them with water and they fill them to the brim. And then in the text, it's between verses 7 and 8, if you're reading. It's there with no fanfare and no outward words or actions. He performs the miracle. And the servants draw some out. They take it to the master of the banquet, the head waiter. This is the person who would regulate the distribution of food and drink and often taste the food and the wine before giving it to the guests. So they take it to the headmaster. And the text tells us the servants know what happened, but the headmaster, the master of the banquet, he has no idea. So what does he do? He calls the bridegroom. Why does he call the bridegroom? Because it's the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine. And usually, he says to the bridegroom, people bring out the choice wine first. Right? They, they bring out the best wine, and then after people have drank a little bit, they're less discerning. Then they bring out the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That's the language of the text. Which, of course, indicates that the wine in view here is alcoholic wine. They often cut wine in the ancient world, but this is water turned into wine. So Jesus makes in abundance 150 gallons of wine. Not only that, he makes extremely high quality wine. The master tells the bridegroom, you saved the best wine until now. On a purely human level, it's a wonderful gift given to a needy wedding couple. And Jesus does it in a sort of semi-public, largely behind-the-scenes way. Most of the attendees have no idea where this wine came from. And so the story itself ends with John telling us this 
This, beloved, is the first sign Jesus did through which he reveals his glory. Even though his hour has not yet come, he shows a taste of his glory to just a small circle of people. So now I want to unpack the glory, the significance of the story. So that's the second point. So we have a wedding, which of course points to and anticipates the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that means wine is not simply a gift or a blessing from God to make us glad, though it is that. Wine is a sign of joy and fullness in the messianic age, in the kingdom. The prophetic expectation is that wine flows freely in the kingdom of Messiah. You can find wine associated with the kingdom throughout Jewish literature. You find this in Jeremiah 31, in Hosea 14, in Amos 9, in Joel 3. You find it in our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 is in the context of God preparing an eschatological banquet, a feast for all the nations at a time when he swallows up death. And Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. So the, the sign here that Jesus does then, is, it's not a kind of magic trick, nor is it simply an act of power. It is, John says, the revelation of Jesus' glory. Why is it the revelation of Jesus' glory? Because it's the revelation of his kingdom. The kingdom established by his death and exaltation. The wine unveils the glory of the king and his kingdom, which has now arrived. Right? This is indicated by the six stone water pots. Six is a number of incompleteness. Right? It is associated now with the Jewish order of washings and purifications. They're filled to the brim, indicating that the old order is finished. It's full. It's run its course. Its wine has run out. And the new wine, which comes through the word made flesh, surpasses the old, even as wine surpasses water. Right? John has already told us this in other language. He said in chapter 1, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He says the glory of the old is fading. That's what he's saying here. And the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus is dawning on the world. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. And that's what we see here. God saves history's best wine for last. For the hour when Jesus' glory begins bleeding through the darkness. And so Jesus is revealed here at Cana, in this wedding, not simply as the sovereign creator who can supply all our needs, but he is being revealed as the messianic bridegroom. John the Baptist will actually call him the bridegroom in the next chapter. And as the bridegroom, that means Jesus is the one who supplies the wine of the kingdom feast for his people. So, of course, he supplies an abundance, 150 gallons, because he brings to us 
abundant, overflowing life. He's no miser. Right? He's not cramped about the life he gives. He supplies an abundance and he supplies the highest quality, the most glorious wine, because he brings abundant and glorious, indeed glorified, life. This is what is meant by the term glory. It ultimately means glorification. He destines us for resurrection glory in the kingdom at the wedding supper of the Lamb, face to face with the triune God in the new creation. What does the wine symbolize? Abundant, undiminished life in the highest form. Life of unsurpassed sweetness and fullness. Eternal life. Transfigured life. Life and light and joy without end in unbreakable union with the risen, transfigured Christ. The wine is the sign of that glory. And in this life, the messianic wine flows out to us even now. Right? It's not a coincidence, it's far from a coincidence, that when Jesus institutes the sacrament, which sums up his whole life and ministry, the New Testament banquet, he does so with wine. It's what any Old Testament reader would expect. And as an aside, next week when we have the Lord's Supper, we will have a better, more equitable distribution of wine and grape juice at the trays. So be patient with us. You should be able to get what you need and want. But largely because of a text like this and other texts, we want to redress the balance a little bit. So this now is the hour of abundant and great wine. The banquet and the song of the kingdom have commenced in the church. The greater things promised to Nathaniel are being unveiled. You'll notice at the end of verse 11, we are told that this is the first sign, this first sign, and Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples. Notice this in the text. His disciples believed in him. I mean, they had already believed on some level, obviously. But now they believe more deeply. But you know what else is interesting about this text? It's often been used historically in association with epiphany. It's an epiphany text because Jesus' glory, his mission, the deep logic of Jesus' mission is unveiled here. That's what I want you to see. Right? This is not just a power trick. Right? This, this story does not work if Jesus turns the water into chocolate milk. Right? It's a, that's a completely different thing. What's going on here is the glory and the logic of Jesus' death and resurrection and of his kingdom is unveiled. Right? John says that Jesus did many signs, but the ones that he's written are recorded so that you might believe that he's the Messiah. Even if you've already believed, this text is inviting you to believe afresh, to come afresh. Right? After all, the disciples already believed, and here they believed more deeply. Right? The servants at the banquet, they saw the sign, but apparently not the glory. We're we're not told that they believed. It takes eyes of faith to see the glory here. You could see the miracle, as I just said, and not see the glory. You could not see that this miracle means the text is a summons to enter and to celebrate with gladness, fullness of life in Christ, to drink the wine that he provides. You know, alternatively, when, when a person takes a 
robust and a vigorous and an engaging approach to life, you know, like seeking to suck all the marrow out of life, when they do that apart from this bridegroom and his wine, eventually the old wine runs out. Life that is completely oriented to this age eventually grows stale. It wears out. It loses its luster. I mean, how many rounds of golf can you play, right? How many trips to Europe can you take? How many houses can you live in? How many gardens can you walk through at one time? You know, Solomon had all this stuff and was completely bored. Hemingway is a prime example here. He certainly lived life robustly, but tragically he ended in suicidal despair. But there are millions of less dramatic examples than that. Right? John has written so that we, disciples who've not seen with our eyes, but have read, we've read this report. We might see glory here. And with eyes of faith, believe again or believe anew. It's a magnificent text. It tells us that the wine of the Messianic kingdom, the best wine, the abundant wine, is now being poured out for your soul. Drink from it. All of you. For blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen.